All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Kabbalah Cafe. So today the topic is the topic is reinvention. What did I write? Um, personal reinvention. Who remembers? Reinventing yourself. Reinventing yourself. Thank you. Reinventing yourself. So I want to begin with a question that I've asked many times before, and you all know the answer, but it's just going to get us into the topic. And the question is: If you have three frogs on a log, and one decides to jump. How many do you have left on the log? Zero. The answer, wait, again, three frogs on the log. One decides to jump. How many do you have on the log? The answer is three. Right, Ray's got this. The answer is three. Why? Oh, because deciding to jump is not the same as jumping. Right, I said one decided to jump. Deciding to jump is not the same as actually jumping. In life, we decide things all the time. You know, this year we're, up, we're coming up to a new year, <laughs> hence the chauffeur or, you know, the invisible chauffeur. You know what's crazy about this year? Sorry as I interrupt myself. This year, first day Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbat. And you know on Shabbat, you don't sound the chauffeur. And the reason for that is because Shabbat accomplishes the same thing that chauffeur accomplishes. So when Rosh Hashanah is Shabbat, it's like, it's the chauffeur, it's, you don't, you don't need the chauffeur. It's kind of like the sound of silence. Kind of like Zoom. And Elul, you don't need the chauffeur. Apparently, Zoom has decided that you don't need to hear the chauffeur uh, this month. But anyway, I digress. So deciding to jump is not the same as jumping. Making a resolution to, to it's some area of personal change is not the same as actually changing because that is, of course, that is fraught with much more, um, uh, many more steps and, and more difficulty than just simply deciding to change or deciding to, that something will be different. So with that in mind, I want to share with you the following um, uh, parable that I once heard. You have a circus elephant, and I should mention, I am not weighing in pro-circus or anti-circus. That is, I want to be very clear on this. There is a big debate about circus. I am, not, I am neither weighing in pro or anti. I read Life of Pi when it came out. You guys remember Life of Pi? Anybody see the movie? Was it good? I read the book. The book was great. I read it when it first came out. We were living in Brooklyn. And there I was with that dude, I forgot his name, on the raft, with the tiger. I, I will not give more away from the, from, the, uh, from the story. But the point is that I remember that book being, um, oh, nice, friend. Yeah, me too. It was a very good book. So um, I remember that book was, the undertones were pro-circus. Or pro, no, oh, no, not circus. Zoo, pro-zoo. Right, pro-zoo. Not Pro Zach, pro zoo. That's a different. That's a different pro. But anyway, so um, the question is: so so you have a circus elephant, and the circus elephant is attached. I don't know. This is like the parable. Who knows if this actually plays out? So suspend some sort of uh, you know belief here for a second. But you have a circus elephant that is performing, and it's tied to a string, and the string seems very flimsy. The question that could be asked is. Well, if the, if, the, if, the, if the elephant wanted to, it could certainly break the string and, and, and run away. So why doesn't it? And I once heard a beautiful analysis of this, a Hasidic analysis, uh, you know, that leads to a, to a point in, in Hasidus and Kabbalah that says the following. The reason is because when the elephant was young, when the elephant was a baby, it had that string. And when the elephant was a baby, it could not break through that string. And then as it got older, it learned... It, it learned the belief, the self-belief that I am weaker than the string. 
And because it had that self-belief that I cannot break through this string, so therefore, even in adulthood, now that the, that the elephant is so mighty and so powerful, it still can't break through the string. Why? Because it's all about belief. It's all about mindset. And so I think what's very important, good morning, good morning. I think what's very important is, in, in our own lives, to ask ourselves the question, how many things are holding us back based on our belief that we cannot whatever, overcome that thing or challenge that thing or battle that thing or, or that thing is stronger than us. How many things in our lives are like that string to the elephant that even though at this point in our lives we're no longer the child, we're no longer the young adult, we are, we are the person that we are and we have the ability perhaps to overcome that string, to overwhelm that challenge, but so often we don't and the reason why we don't is because of the stories we tell ourselves. The story being that I am too powerless, I am weak, I am not strong, I am incapable, I am unable, or I'm not uh, good in this area, or not talented in this area, or not smart in this area, or not capable in this area, and we have these narratives that serve to hold us back. In other words, it's the belief that serves to create a reality. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Does that make sense? Does that resonate? So many things in our lives, we tell ourselves, you know, the difference between perception and reality is, very, is a very thin line because the way we perceive ourselves really creates a certain reality. The way we perceive others creates a reality. So if I tell myself, right, if I, or someone tells themselves, you know, I can't do X, Y, or Z because I'm not good at doing X, Y, or Z, then you know what? They're not going to do it. Or if they do it, they're going to fail. They might fail. Why? Because, again, it's a belief. So the question is, how do we change that about ourselves? When we talk about reinventing ourselves, what does that mean? It means almost reinventing the narratives of our lives. We've talked about this innumerable times, the power of Bina. Right? So I have here the Kabbalistic chart that you've seen many times, but I have more pages this time. Look at this. I don't know why I'm throwing it around. But I do have more pages to this, which we will talk about in a moment as we get into Kabbalistic relativism. We'll get there in a second. But one of the most important elements, one of the most important spherot energies in our soul and in the cosmos is Bina. Bina is where narratives are shaped. Chachma is objective information. Bina is narrative. And Bina is, I would argue, and, and many would argue, that Bina is more important than Chachma. In other words, more important than the objective information is the way I perceive that information. Because you can put all the facts, in, not facts, you can put all of the information in front of someone, but it's really about how they interpret the information that will determine what type of impact that has. Does that make sense? So it's all about the interpretation. We've talked about this before, the idea of gvura. You know what, let me pass these around. That's that way you can see what I'm, what I'm, what I'm talking about, even if it's the precursor to the, to the longer um, review of this. All right, please take and pass. Please take and pass. Thank you very much. Yep. All right, I'm going to put this up on the screen as well so you guys see what I'm talking about. Um, let me get this up. Where is this? Hold on. By the way, I was going through some old audio. It's crazy. Some old Kabbalah, Sunday morning Kabbalah class um, um, audio. And I was listening to the last class before COVID and then the first class <laughs> after COVID. It was March. The last one was, I think, March 15. 2020? Yeah. 
and we were like talking about COVID and social distancing and it sounds like we were definitely in person based on the conversation. And then the next one was like, all right, we're on Zoom. <laughs> Let's, <laughs> oh man, that was crazy times. Anyway, uh, back, back over here. So let me share my screen. And I only say that because three years later, I'm still like, Always like, oh, hey, where's, where's the share screen button? Okay, here we go. Uh, here's the partsuf. Oh, partsuf, let me just explain. This is a very important Kabbalistic word. You see on the top, partsuf. Partsuf means face. Partsuf means face. And the reason why this is called face, the partsuf, is because of the orientation of these energies of right, left, and center. You notice that? How this, the spherot are designed as, a, as three columns, right, left, center? Kind of like a face, two eyes. Right, symmetrical. Two eyes and nose, mouth, ears. So you have this. Exactly. Right. (laughs) So you have this um, this visage, 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 whatever. Partsov, it's face, Um, and that is the way the energies appear in the world of tikkun, in the world of tohu, world of chaos. um, The energies are all isolated, and they don't. There are no lines that are interconnecting. And they don't work with each other, which is why that led to the Shvirata Kalim, the explosion or the implosion of the world of Tohu, the world of chaos, hence the name chaos, which led to the Shvirata Kalim, the shattering of the vessels. But what's important to know is in the world of Tikkun, the world of repair, um, which is the world that we exist in, so you have the energies that are balanced with each other. I want to draw your attention to Gevura. You see that the the left, the, the top of the red lines on the left side, you see Gevura. Gvura is translated here as severity, but really Gvura um, on an energetic level inside, Gvura refers to the energy of discipline. Um, it refers to the idea of, so we have discipline, we have, it, it means strength, yeah, it's, it takes strength to be disciplined. Um, it's easier, so chesed is an open hand, it's giving. Uh, Gvura is a closed hand, is holding back, withholding. So which is harder to do? So on a muscle level, it's easier to just have your hand relaxed. To actually clench it is gavura requires strength, and that's also severity, the idea of creating rules and boundaries. Healthy, healthy discipline. The problem with gavura, though, is that it could also lead to unhealthy um, anger or sternness or judgment or rage. You know, these very negative um, energies and emotions and, and actions that can stem from Gvura. So Gvura can, be, can lead to anger. Now, one way to mitigate Gvura, if a person recognizes within themselves that they get triggered and they get angry and they, they want to work on that, because again, today is about um, reinventing ourselves. So one way to, to, um, to work with Gvura is by going up the, li- the line above it, i.e. Bina. And Bina is understanding, but Bina is really, as I mentioned before, Bina is about a narrative. Is the story we tell ourselves. So someone does something or says something, right? And then we have a story about what that means. Like, oh, they said that. So objectively, they just said, they said one thing or a few things, but they said what they said. But then we have a narrative, ah, they said that. Here's what it means. What they're really doing is disrespecting me and mocking me and whatever, or whatever it is. So the bina is really what leads to the gavura getting out of control and leading into anger. In other words, I'm getting angry not necessarily by an objective um, scenario, but by my subjective perception of what happened. Or to use another way of framing this, if the same thing happened, even if the person had malicious intent 
to try to harm me or to try to, you know, let's say verbally assault me. But if my Bina tells me someone who is moving into that space of verbal assault, man, they must be in a lot of pain inside. Let me have compassion on them for their pain. That is my Bina reframing the action that might be objective and that, cha- that can change everything. Does that make sense? In other words, it's when, I, it's when something happens and I understand it a certain way that I can then respond emotionally. So to me, Bina is the key of all of these elements. Bina is where framing happens and that directly leads to the way we feel about something, whether positive, negative, um, invested, indifferent, etc. Okay, does that make sense? So far so good? Yes, 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 yes. Good? All right. Now, um, so once we have this chart, so what's important to, to, to look at is that what we have here is the energies that exist both within the cosmic framework of existence as well as our personal self. And when we think about reinventing ourselves, right, it's all about looking, Kabbalah says it's all about looking within to see what are the energies, how are they operating inside, and then what can we tweak on the inside? Um, which leads me to the, to the next idea, and we're going to circle back to this in a moment, but which leads me to the next point that I want to mention, which is very important, which is the idea of Kabbalistic relativism. Kabbalistic relativism states the following, that something is either higher or lower, right, or lofty or not so lofty, depending on the position, the relative position of the other thing that's measuring it, right? It's kind of like I'm channeling my inner Einstein, right? Einstein says, yes, I'm like quoting very super roughly theory of relativity, right? That a thing is measured by another thing based on where it is and where that thing is. Yes, something like that, more or less. You guys are experts at Einstein. No, perfect. And yes, that's exactly what he said. That's a quote verbatim. The point here is that relativity means that something is measured not objectively necessarily, but relative to something else which again is like Bina. Bina is relative understanding. It's how I am, how I'm showing up, how I feel inside, and how therefore I interpret something that's happening. But in the context of, I'll give you an example. I heard that this is attributed to, um, to Einstein, but I don't know if it's true. I heard the story goes, maybe it's not a true story, that somebody once asked Einstein to explain his theory of relativity. And he said like this, if a person has one hair on their head, right? What do, you, what's, what do we call that person? Hairy guy. No, no, one hair on their head. We say they're bald. However, if, you, if the waiter brings you a bowl of soup and there's one hair in the soup, what do you say? It's hairy soup, right? The same one hair. So on a head, bald. On and soup, it's hairy. In other words, it's, re- it's all about, it's all relative, right? On a head, one hair, it's, it's, it's not a lot. In soup, it's one too many. And so we have a similar construct, <laughs> a similar construct. When it comes to reality, if you turn the page in the, in the little um, uh, handout that I prepared, so what you see on the next page, and I'm going to scroll here on the screen, what you see on the next page is, give me a second, is spiritual world with ten sphero. Now, obviously, obviously, this is not a snapshot. This is not an actual picture of what one of the spiritual worlds looks like with the ten sphero, but it's a depiction to kind of wrap our heads around you know, the way, the, the interaction between different energies. So Kabbalah speaks of four spiritual worlds. And we have the world of Atzilut, the world of emanation. 
the world of Bria, the world of creation, the world of Yetzirah, the world of formation, and the world of Asiyah, the world of action. So you have four worlds, emanation, um, emanation, oh, the special guest showing us. We have emanation, creation, formation, and action. And so in each world, you have the same template of energies, just like within each person. You have a lot of people around the world, right? You have a lot of people, billions of people in the world, and everyone has a soul with these 10 energies. Now, turn the page to the next page. And what you have here is the four worlds. Okay, you have the four worlds depicted. Again, this is not an actual um, photo. But you have the four worlds depicted with their relative energies inside. So you have the world of Atzilut, the world of emanation, Creation, Bria, creation, Yetzira, formation, Asiya, action. By the way, just so you know where we are, we exist in the lower half of the world of Asiya. The world of Asiya, action has actually two dimensions a spiritual dimension and a physical dimension. We exist in the physical side of the world of Asiya. So we live in Asiya South, maybe. Am we live I in. Something? Aren't these four pictures the same? Yes. Why? Hey, David. Why are they the same? I'll tell you why they're the same. They're the same because every single world has the same template. Just like every person has the same 10 energies in their soul, every spiritual world or all the worlds have the same template of energies, of cosmic energies inside of them that drives them. So it's the same template of energies, but in a, on a different level, which gets, to, which gets me to my point about relativism. And that is like this. You have, let's say, let's do this. To, um, okay, the lowest energy of the highest world, right? You with me? That's Malchut of Atzilut. So the world of Atzilut is up here. That's depicted by the circle. The lowest energy is the s small red circle that is, that is below the rest of that body of energies. That's called Malchut. Malchut means leadership. It is, literally means kingship, but it's leadership, sovereignty, or the part of the energy that's about relating to someone outside of oneself, which is why it's the lowest, because it's the one that's ready to relate to the next dimension. So, to Atzilut, Malchut is the lowest. But to Bria, Malchut is above it. It's the Keter. Let me say that again. Okay? In Atzilut, Malchut is the lowest dimension. It's the lowest dimension. But when you have, relative to the way Bria looks at it, Malchut is above it. Malchut is its keter, its crown. Right? Keter Malchut. It's the crown of Malchut. That lies above Bria. Likewise within Bria, its lowest dimension is Malchut. Relative to, y to Yitzira, that energy of Malchut, of Bria, is its crown. The point being that everything is relative. You have um, a relative, so when you ask the question, so is Malchut of Atzilut, is that a high level or is it a low level? The answer is, depends, who, depend who, depends who's looking. If you're Chachma of Atzilut, which is the first energy of Atzilut, and you're looking at Malchut, then you're looking down on Malchut. Malchut is the lowest. But if you're in Bria and you're looking up, then what do you say? Oh, Malchut. Oh, it's all the way up there. You with me on this? Yes. So it's all about, it's all, it's all relative. It's all relative where you're looking, how you're looking. Turn to the next page. Okay, turn to the next page. And here's a bit of a Kabbalistic map. Let me make this uh, text a little bit bigger online. You guys can see it as well. All right, Kabbalah map. So I, so I put this together to give you a sense of some of the terminology that exists in the uh, mystical map of existence. So we have Ein Sof at the top. Ein Sof, is literally, Ein Sof literally means with no end. 
or no end. Ein Sof means no end, and it refers to the infinite, which is the infinite essence of God. Then you have the Ar Ein Sof. What is the Ar Ein Sof? What is Ar in Hebrew? Not Or, but Ar? Light. Light. So you have Ar Ein Sof is the infinite light, or the light of the infinite, which is already not the infinite itself, but the light of the infinite. There's a difference. So you have infinite, and then you have the light of the infinite. Like you would have, for example, physically, um, thinking about the sun, you would have the sun, and then you have the rays of light that the sun emanates. Those are two different things. You have the body of the sun, and then you have the light that the sun emanates. Those are two different realities. Of course, the sun itself is, is the essence of that body, whereas the, the rays of light. So, for example, outside. There's light outside. I literally see sunlight outside. Right? That is not, you, it's incomparable to the sun itself. Right? You can't say that that sun is the same as the, sorry, that that light is the same as the sun. The sun is the sun, and the rays of light extend from the sun. I'm a big stick figure um, artist. Why? Because the story I've told myself, I caught myself, let's say I'm not artistic, but the story I've told myself, this Why is my, this is my, artistic? no, this is my elephant string. So my elephant string is, I'm not, I'm not artistic. Like I can't, uh, draw or paint or do anything too exotic. So I'm more of a stick figure guy. Again, that's my narrative. So when I draw a sun, right? So I do old school sun. You draw a circle and, not that I draw sun often, but conceptually, with boom, with spokes coming out of it. So you have the sun would be the circle and then you have the spokes, which is the light. Two different things. There's ma'ar and ar. In Hebrew, we would say ma'ar, right? Is the source of light. And then ar is the light. So the same thing is true with Hashem. You have the Ein Sof, that refers to God's infinite essence, and then you have something else. And then you have the Ar Ein Sof, the light of the infinite, or the infinite light, which is also called, as you see here on the, on the sheet, it's also known as Malchot of Ein Sof, and Shem Hagadol, the great name. All um, su- um, pseudonyms, is that the right word? They're all names that, that, that refer to the same thing, the light of the infinite. Synonyms. 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 He's got the cinnamon. You got cinnamon in your backpack, right? I feel like there's a story there. However, <laughs> let's move on. Then you have Tsimtsum. The way the, Kab- the Kabbalistic map works is you have Ein Sof, you have Ar Ein Sof, and then you have the Tsimtsum. Tsimtsum is the contraction. By the way, it's interesting. So we're coming up to Chai El, with the, which is the birthday of the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe. What's fascinating about that is um, when you think about Hasidic, right, the Hasidic movement, when you think about the Hasidic movement, so it's hard not to think about how in the early days of the Hasidic movement there was a lot of opposition from those that opposed the Hasidic movement. And the theological or philosophical uh, reason for this break, for this division, was all about the Tzimtzum, whether the Tzimtzum was literal or not literal, which is a crazy concept that a massive, I don't know, massive uh, uh, conflict or relatively massive conflict, would break out over an ideological idea. The question about Simpsum, Simpsum is the, is the contraction. Simpsum means that as long as God is infinitely filling all of space, there's no room for anything else to exist. So the Simpsum is where God withdraws or contracts, shrinks a little bit, as it were, right, and then allows space for otherness to exist. So Simpsum is the, is the contraction that allows for the space, sorry, allows space for otherness to exist. Simpson. The question is, and Kabbalah speaks at length about this, the question that the, that, that the students of Kabbalah had was, is Simpson literal or is it non-literal? In other words, does it mean that God literally 
shrinks, right? Or is it that God creates the perception that he shrinks, but he's still there? You with me on this? Yeah? In other words, is it that God is still filling all of space, but he creates the illusion that he's not, and in that illusion space he exists? Or is it that he literally shrinks and allows space for us to exist? The Vilnagon, you may have heard that name before, the Vilnagon, the genius of Vilna, who was the head of the, um, became known as the Misnagdim, uh, those that opposed the Hasidic movement, famously believed in Simpson Kipshuto. Simpson was literal. In fact, they likened it, that camp likened it to a king who is in his palace and he has windows, kind of like this, that looks out over the kingdom. And so he is in his own space observing what happens out there. But he's in his own space. So God is in his own space observing what happens in creation, but God is not there, not present. That's Simpson Kipshuta. Literal Simpson means God is moving to, to a space, to a certain space, and, and then there, the rest of the space, he's, he's not there, but of course he's watching. Simpson Lokipshuta, non literal Simpson means that God is, in fact, in that space as before. God is in all space like before. It's just that we don't see God. It's like a magic trick. Not like. It's the greatest magic trick where we don't perceive God's presence, even though he's right here. And our job is to reveal God's presence, how God is really here the whole time. By the way, Uncle Maishi, anybody familiar with Uncle Maishi? The songs? Yeah? One of his famous songs is, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. Right? That would not work according to the Vilna That wouldn't work. Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. Not if you say it's Simpson Kipshuta. Not if you take Simpson literally. If you take Simpson literally, Hashem is not everywhere. Hashem is, God is in one place and observing what happens in our space, but not here. The Alter Rebbe and others, other Kabbalists, believe that Simpson was not literal and therefore God is here. And this became a major point of distinction and ultimately, unfortunately, some conflict. But that's a, that's a story for itself, how that led to conflict and, and, and negativity. That Simpson debate, I don't think that anybody even then, the ones that were really causing the, the conflict, I don't think they understood what... what the Vilna Goliath had a, had a conceptual distinction. But what happens often is that people that are not the original individuals, they get all... Um, they get very... Um, I don't know what the right word is. Territorial, college footballian, and they, right, it becomes like teams, Right? <coughs> My team versus your team. Color war, huh? Yeah. Um, what's that? Sharks, Jets, West Side Story. It becomes, huh? West Side Story. It becomes like it, Kabbalah, the musical. What? I, that's a good question. That's a good question. Today, do, does anyone still believe Simpson Kipshuto? I don't know. That's a good question. This was also, this, this is a machloka, this is a, a, a debate or a dispute that preceded, predated the Altrim and the Vulnagon. But it, for some reason, it just came to, uh, came to a thing. And then, and then it, just, it just spiraled. At that point, it spiraled. 
because there were other things that the Hasidic movement was saying that others didn't like, and so they used this as a pretense to say that they got things wrong at the core. They're saying that God is, is the problem with saying Simpson Lokapshuto, right? That's not literal, means that God is right here. The theological problem with that is that you're taking a perfect God and miring a perfect God in an imperfect world. See, the reason why I say Simpson Kipshuta means that God is, is not enmeshed in the imperfection. God remains, God withdrew literally into a perfect space, maintaining his perfection, is overseeing, you know, like the king looking out at the window over this world that is flawed, over creation that is flawed in many ways, but is not in that. Which is why literally, that's literally the rationale for Simpson Kipshuta. That's why the literal Simpson camp says that. So as to keep God perfect and not dirty by this reality. Also minimizes God. Correct. Makes him not able to be everywhere so, and create a world without uh, having to, you know. Correct. It God. says that, God, that there's a space where God isn't, which is, which is also problematic. So the question is, which problem do you prefer? The problem of God being involved in imperfection or God not being around? Which, which one do you like? God is not omnipresent or God is, is, um, is somehow... So that, that's where you, so you have to compromise on one of those elements. You can't have, you can't have it both. Although Chassidus Chabad tries to get the best of both worlds through various ways of, you know, of understanding. But that, that's all a deeper dive into this idea. But the point here is that, getting back to the map, so we have here Einsof, the infinite, the arms of the light of the infinite, and then you have the tzimtzum contraction, however you understand that, which then leads to, after the tzimtzum contraction, you have then a roshem, which is a residue, the rishimo, um, which is a point, forget about the yud for a second, and then the kav, so you have a rishimo, you have a, um, like a residue of the original light, even if the original light is absent, you have a, a residual effect, that the, a residual um, uh, uh, um you know, a thing that remains. Then you have the kav, a line of light that's re, that's sh- that shines into the space of the tzimtzum. And then you have other dimensions. You have Adam Kadmon, Ak, Primordial Man, Tiri Law. You have the four worlds, as we just depicted over here before. Atzila, Bria, Yitzir, Asiya, Emanation, Creation, Formation, Action. You have all these levels. The reason for this map, the reason why I, I, I wanted to uh, share this with you today is... And this is not a map, it's like a written, it's a written map, um, written directions, make or write at the Kav. So the reason for this is to illustrate the following point, and that is that when you talk about light, when you talk about God, when you talk about spirituality, and you ask, well, is this high or is this low? Is, other, is Ak, is Ak high, Adam Kadman, is that high, lofty? Absolutely. Relative to the Ein Sof, it's not so high. It's all relative. I remember one of the questions when I was first learning Chassidus, but like in a very serious way in yeshiva, um, I was in Marstown, I must have been, I don't know, 17, 18 years old, and like, like a real deep dive into Chassidus. And I remember you studying different, my mom, different discourses, and you would get to, um, get to a place in understanding where there were contradictions everywhere. You would learn one discourse and it would talk about how great this level is. And then you would learn another discourse and would talk about how low this level is. And the question was, well, which is it? Is it high or is it low? Well, and right. And so I, I went to the Mashbia, the teacher then, whose name was Rabbi Meir Tzvibel. He passed away a few years ago. Just a, an absolute renowned genius in Chassidus and Kabbalah. And he would, in Yiddish, he spoke Yiddish, he would answer. 
he was a guy who was not of this world. He was a guy whose head was like literally, anyway, he's a special, special guy. He said, he would always say the following line, Sevenzich vumeret, which is Yiddish for, it's all relative. Sevenzich vumeret means it depends what you're talking about. So in this context, it's very high. In another context, it's low. Depends on where, where are you? Where are you coming from? You're looking at Ak, Adam Kahnman. You're looking at Ak. Ak is here. But where are you? Are you looking at it from Ein Sof? Then you're looking down. If you're looking at it from our vantage point, it's way up. So it's, there, is no, um, there is no definitive point. To, there, is no, there is no one measuring point to say, well, this is definitively high or low. It depends on where you're looking at it. By the way, not to get very controversial, but the Rebbe once addressed in a letter um, the question of you know, whether the sun revolves around the moon or the, sorry, the sun revolves around the earth or the earth revolves around the sun. Yes, that whole thing. I don't think it's a debate in science, but it used to be. But Rambam writes about that. Rambam has a take on that, right? Rambam says that, and, and, and this is based on, of course, the way science looked at it before. Who, who are the major players? Caper, uh, Copernicus, Galileo. Who else was involved in this? Was Galileo involved? The way we, at, we follow Copernicus, is that, is that what we're doing? Or we, who knows at this point? Who knows? It's all Greek to me. The point is that the Rebbe pointed out, based on Einstein and, and, and relativity, so the question is, where are you looking at? Where are you standing? Depending on where you're standing, where you're looking at, one might revolve around the other. But the question is, if both bodies are moving, if all bodies are moving, then the question is, who's moving around whom is almost like an impossible question to answer. Does that make sense? No? All right. It's also okay. Here's the point. The point is things are relative. And because things are relative, um, you can look at the same thing two different ways, which, gets, which leads me to the next point. Okay, so we've established a few things. We've established that perception is very important. You know? We've established that, that things are relative within Kabbalah. You know, a level might be high or low depending on where you are. But now I want to talk about something else. Three dimensions of the human being. Soul, let's do this. We're going to do soul, body, and clothing. Soul, body, clothing. Okay, so when you think about, let's leave clothing aside for a second. So when you think about the human being, so life is the human being is comprised of body and soul, correct? Body and soul. So the core life of a person is connected to their soul. Because the body, right, the core life of a person is attributed to soul. Because body, without a soul, is a corpse, right? It's not a live body, right? If you've ever, God, I mean, unfortunately, if you've ever been in proximity to a person that's passed away, right? I, I think many of us have had that experience, myself included. If you've been around the person who has passed away, recently passed away. So oftentimes, many times, the body looks exactly the way it did a moment ago when the person was alive, but it's no longer alive. So what's the difference? So the way we, the, the, the language that we use is we say that there was um, a soul that was operating in it, and now the soul is no longer operating it. In other words, it was a, the person was alive because they had the soul. Now it's just a body. Call a corpse. No longer alive. 
Okay. So that is body and soul. So we would say that the, the main core of life is the soul, and the body is the housing that houses the, the soul. In other words, if you want to look at it this way, it's kind of like God sends down a soul into this world to do great things. Um, but in order for the soul to operate in a physical environment, it needs a physical spacesuit. What's the physical spacesuit? The body. In other words, if God wants the soul to bring light into someone else's life by, um, I don't know, cooking a meal for someone else or delivering cookies, let's just say, to someone in need of some cookies. Better yet, buying a couple of hundred cookies. Oh, even, oh, even better. Win-win. Multiple wins. All right. Buying a few hundred cookies for, for, for someone else. So a soul in a, in a physical environment, the soul can't do that. How can the soul? The soul doesn't have the ability to do that, to operate in a physical environment. So how, so how does it work? So the soul, God puts the soul in a body, and the body does have those physical, um, those physical uh, um, you know, limbs, extremities, etc. And now the soul can operate in a physical environment. So that's one thing. So that's one layer. So we have soul and then body. And then on top of body is clothing. So we have soul. I, I, I ran out of hands. We have soul, we have body, and then on top of body is clothing. So the question is like this. Is the body a garment or is it not a garment? So the answer is, it's all relative. Relative to the soul, the body is a garment. Relative to clothing, i.e. what we call garments, the body is not a garment, it's the person. You with me on this? In other words, relative to the soul, if you think of the soul itself, the entire body is but a garment to the soul. But relative to clothing, the body is the essence of the person. In the language of Kabbalah, which we're going to get into today inside in just a moment, in the language of Kabbalah, there are attached garments and detached garments. There's a garment that's attached, meaning you can't take it off. It's the body. The body is a garment to the soul, but it's not easily removed. You can't just peel off the body. However, the actual clothing that we wear, that's what we call detached garments, i.e. garments that can be easily removed. So we have attached garments and detached garments. Garments that are stuck on, as it were, until you know a person passes away. And then you have garments that are not attached, that are not stuck, that can be easily removed. Now why... And if you're a single guy, you've got garments laying on the floor of the closet. Also. <laughs> that's, that's another category. Those are garments that are not being worn. But if we think about, again, we think about layers. So we have the core soul, we have the body, and then we have clothing. So we have almost three dimensions. We have the inside and then two dimensions on the outside. That middle dimension could either be, be construed as a garment to what's inside or as the core to what's outside. The same thing is true with this. Here we go. The same thing is true with this. Now, Here's something that's very important. There's a contradiction in Kabbalah. No. These are, I said before, and we've said many times, these are the cosmic energies, they're also the soul energies. The question is, what does the neshama look like? What does a soul look like? So a person might say, someone who's learned Kabbalah, so they say, this is what a soul looks like. It has three intellectual powers and seven emotional powers. This is what a soul looks like. Not exactly, but this is what a soul has. Right here, these energies, 10 energies, that's what the soul is com composed of. However, 
in other places, and you will find that in, in Kabbalah and Chassidus. But in other places, other sources, you know what it says? It says that the soul is an undefined essence that is way beyond or way, much deeper than these 10 energies. So now the question is, well then, well, what's a soul? I always learned that a soul was these 10 energies. A soul has three intellectual powers and seven emotional powers. And now you're telling me, no, the soul is undefined essence, is undefined energy that way transcends these 10 particular modalities of, 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 of feeling and ideas. Great. Which one is it? The answer is, they're both right. In other words, the soul really is an unformed essence. But, and this, these 10 soul powers are like a garment to the soul itself. They're like another layer to the, of the soul, but not the core soul. So you have, again, you have the core soul, the core neshama, which is undefined, which is undifferentiated. It's not composed. It's not a composite of 10 energies. The pure soul, the pure neshama, is pure divine energy. That's the core. Then you have another layer on top of that, these 10 energies. These 10 energies are another layer on top of the core soul. So you have the core energy and then 10 layers, 10 dimensions, 10 modalities of, of, of being. And then on top of that, you have another layer, what we call the levushim, the garments of the soul. And that is machshava, dibur, and maisa. We've talked about this many times. Thought, speech, and action. There's the pure soul, undifferentiated. There are the 10 powers of the soul. And then on top of that, you have another layer, the three garments of the soul. Like I said before about soul, body, clothing, soul, 10 soul powers and garments of the soul, that middle layer is the most complicated. How do you look at that middle layer? Is it the soul or is it a garment? If you're looking at the soul itself, then the ten soul powers are but a garment. If you're looking at the three garments of the soul, machshava, dibar, maisa, thought, speech, and action, the ten soul powers constitute the essence of the soul or the definition of the soul itself. Does that make sense? Yes? In other words, these ten soul powers, are they the soul or are they something on top of the soul? If you're looking from the core out, this is definitely a layer on top. If you're looking from the outside in, this looks pretty pretty deep inside. All of this to say that it's so much easier, so much easier to change the stuff that's on the outside than the stuff that's on the inside. To change the garments is relatively, relatively easy. To change, when I say garments, thoughts, speech, and action. To change this is way harder to change the core essence of your soul, impossible. The core essence of our souls, we will never change. The garments of the soul, so the, the innermost part, not happening. The outermost part, it's the, relatively the easiest. The middle layer, these 10 soul powers, it's hard. It's very hard. It's doable, but it's very hard. I'll give you another example. Example would be, um, example would be water. If you wanted to color water, well, it doesn't sound so difficult actually now that I think about it. Um, to color water, what would you do? You would put in some food coloring. 
Whoops, that wasn't so hard. But however, let's say you were trying to do this scientifically like on a molecular basis. You were trying to go into the molecules, I don't know if that's possible, to go into the molecules and somehow change things to make it, is he hiding? No, kidding. It doesn't go through. Oh. I'm trying to catch hiding before they're all gone. Got it. So anyway, imagine if you were trying on a molecular level to change the color of water. That would be difficult. I don't know if it's possible. Any chemists here? No? All right. Whatever. So it sounds like it would be a difficult thing to change the, 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 com the composition of water. You start with water and try to change the water. It sounds possible, but it sounds very difficult. But there's another way if you want to change the appearance of water. And that is to use colored glass. I'll give you another example. This is my favorite devious example of produce, big produce. Because whenever you want to slam an industry, you just put the word big in front of it, right? Big produce. What does big produce do? Big orange. What does big orange do? They take oranges, they put them in a bag. And what color is the bag? Orange. Big orange strikes again, right? Unbelievable. Always big orange. So you look, you look at the bag, you pick up the bag. It's like, oh, these oranges look fantastic. You take the bag home, you open it up. You got yellow oranges. You got like half yellow oranges, half orange, half, half, uh, half yellow. But in the bag, they all looked orange because there's enough orange mesh to create the illusion that everything is looking great. So how hard, if, you're, if you are a yellow orange, to become orange, an orange orange, that might be a lot of work and a lot of internal work. You gotta, I don't know, you gotta ripen, you gotta, you gotta work on yourself to become an orange orange. You know what's easier? To go into a bag, right? To use an orange bag, that's way easier. And so in life, we have the same, in, in our lives, we have the same idea. To really change who we are inside, that's a deep dive. But to, to change the way we're perceived on the outside, in other words, the way we show up on the outside, that is relatively easier. And that's where the garments of the soul come in. What are the garments of the soul? Thought, speech, and action. You know what that means? It's the same water as before. It's the same complicated water. The water inside is complicated. It's conflicted. It doesn't know where it wants to be or what it wants to do, let's say. But now when you look at it on the outside, you put it, forget a glass, let's say you put it into a bottle, put it into a blue, you know, like the, you know that wine, what's that blue, Bartonura, the Moscato, right? Who doesn't love Moscato? If you love a sweet wine, right? Love, oh, you don't like the Moscato, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. I had to ask. Anyway, so you have the so the wine inside is, of course, I don't know, white or whatever that color is, right? It's pretty much not white. It's um, whatever. It's it's a light color, and then but in a blue bottle, of course, when you look at it, it looks blue. So the question is like this, not the question, but but in life we can operate the same way. We're inside. We're the same complicated, confused, conflicted individuals inside. But we put ourselves in a blue bottle, not literally a blue bottle, but conceptually a blue bottle, in which when we show up, it all is perceived blue. Or maybe a better example would be rose-colored glasses, right? A rose-colored color, uh, glass, where when we, when we show up, we're manifest in a way that looks, that looks beautiful and looks, looks the way we want to look in the world. One could say that that's being hypocritical because on the inside, Maybe we don't want to show up in that way, but on the outside we are showing up that way, so why should I be hypocritical? So I'll tell you a story about this. There was once a man, a chassid, a disciple of one of the Chabad Rebbe's, who lived in a far-off town, and he was a businessman, and he became pretty successful. 
but he used to come in to visit his Rebbe once a year around the holidays. So he comes in. And every time he would come in, he would change out of his normal business attire, a business suit. He would put on a kapata. You know what a kapata is? It's like the long, it's like the long, if you've ever seen Chabadniks wear this long um, black, uh, I don't know, looks like someone's conducting a thing, right? So, yeah, exactly. So, so he, he would always, whenever he came to the Rebbe, he would always wear his formal Hasidic garb, but the rest of the year he would wear his business garb. Story goes, one year he decides, who am I fooling? I never wear this garb anymore. I don't wear the chassidic garb. I always put it on to go to the rabbi. Who am I pretending? Like, why am I faking to be something who I am not? So let me go this year. I'm just going to go the way I normally dress and show up. What's interesting is the rabbi sees him, shows up and, and visits the rabbi, his, his rabbi. The rabbi looks at him and he says, until now I thought that the, the, the you that I saw was the real you and you were fooling everyone else. It was that, that, that was your inauthentic self. And now what you're saying is that that's your, in, that's your authentic self and this is your inauthentic self. The point is we're always living a contradiction. The question is how do we define authenticity or inauthenticity? So when, when we have a dissonance between the beverage inside and the glass outside, where the beverage inside looks one way, but the glass outside looks a different way. The question is, a person might say, well, why should I put my energy into a different color glass to show up in a certain way if that's not how I feel inside? And the answer is, you define who you are. Who is the real you and who is the hypocrite? You with me on this? Who says that because you feel angry, that therefore that's who you are? Maybe you're not angry and your feeling is the aberration. Maybe you're really a good person, a kind person. And the anger is the inauthentic self that you're still working on. And one day maybe you'll master. But until then, you're going to live by putting your authentic, aspiring self forward. I.e. not blowing up and not getting angry and not saying the angry thing. That's the question that we all face. And that is what chapter, this is we're up to, we're going to do one chapter today. Um, that's what chapter 5 of our discourse is trying to get, or is, is, is expressing. The idea that since we do have these three layers of self, the core unformed, undefined soul energy, okay? But then the ten powers of the soul, that's right here. And then the three garments of how the soul shows up. Because we have these three different layers, therefore we can be... Inauthentic, in a good way. Or, sorry, we can be, let me try that again. We can be hypocritical in a good way. We can show up in a way that defies how we feel, but expresses our true insight. I'll tell you a story. There was once a man who came to the Rebbe, and he was complaining about people in his life. People are so two-faced, they're so inauthentic. They, they, they say one thing to you, and then they stab you in the back. And the Rebbe was listening. And he said to this guy, he said, yeah, I hear you. I mean, it's, it sounds, you know, like people, what are you going to do? And he says, it's kind of like, the Rebbe says, it's kind of like when you walk outside and you see beautiful houses and beautiful buildings and beautiful structures. He says, but if you dig under, what are you going to get? Dirt. It looks beautiful. The facade looks beautiful. But dig inside, ugh, it's ugly. It's dirt. It's rocks. It's mud. It's earth. And the man's shaking his head. Right. People look all nice in the outside, but inside, it's terrible. People are terrible inside. The Rebbe says, but keep on digging. 
you keep on digging, you know what you're going to hit on a good day? You know what you'll hit? Diamonds. Again, on a good day, on a very good day. Minerals, precious gems, oil. I'm not going to get into big oil, right? You're going to get into, oh, forget oil. You're going to get into precious gems and all these wonderful things. And the Rebbe says that's how we should look at another human being. Somebody appears on the outside, they appear nice. And then you say, yeah, but on the inside, they're not so nice. But keep on digging. Because at the core of their soul, it's beautiful. So we have this beauty, complicated beauty, three layers. By the way, you know what else was what else mirrored that? The Holy Temple, the Ark of the Covenant, right? Where the tablets were placed, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, right? That, that Ark with the Keruvim on top, that Ark, it was made of, Torah says, three boxes. A golden box, a wooden box, and a golden box. When you look at it inside and outside, all you see is gold. But the middle layer was wood. And Kabbalah says, you know what that means? The inside of our core is gold. It's perfect. The outside, ideally, is perfect. That's what we're striving to, right? That's the message of today, is on the outside to improve ourselves, to work on ourselves. The inside, the middle, side, the middle layer is wood. It's complicated. It's not, not so beautiful. Okay, wood can be beautiful also. This is not an attack against wood. But wood, it can rot, right? It can get, it can, it can warp. It can get, it can get not so beautiful. Perfect gold on the inside. Perfect gold on the outside. And in the middle, it's complicated. But that's how life is. So with this in mind, let's read. It's a very short, we're going to read it. it take a few minutes. We're just going to read uh, um, chapter 5. And then, can I bother you one more time, Jeff, to pa- take and sorry. pass? No worries. Um, Yaakov, take and pass as well. And we're going to read chapter 5. It's on page 32. And that will be today's, um, and then we'll, we'll get to today's takeaway. All right, here we go. By the way, Dr. David, David Lazan, welcome back. It is great to see you. I'm, I'm literally excited to see you here, David. Um, it's amazing. All right, let's jump right in. Um, here we go to chapter 5. Garments. All right, let me make this bigger so that I can read this. The reason for this, the Rebbe says, that thought, speech, and deed are within man's control, unlike the emotions of the heart. Again, the emotions of the heart over here change the way you feel. It's going to be a little bit more difficult. But thought, speech, and action, thought, thought speech, and deed are more in one's control. The reason is because... Thought, speech, and deed are the garments of the soul. Therefore, just as, it, just as with regards to the garments of the body, although man needs clothing for the purpose of modesty, since they, Adam and Eve, were ashamed, and also for the purpose of protecting himself from the cold and the heat, page 34, nevertheless, although garments are necessary for various reasons, nevertheless, he, he or she, the person, can remove them. And he certainly does not need these particular clothing that he's wearing now and can change them for others. In other words, when it comes to garments, number one, you can take them off. Number two, you can change them. So you're not, you're not beholden to them. Now, remember, we talked about three levels. There's the soul, the body, and the garments. Go change the body. It's possible. It's possible, right? Conceptually, it's possible. There's surgery. There, there's, there's whatever. But it's, it's way more difficult to change the body than it is to change the clothing. And so that's what he's saying. 
Is it possible to change what's inside? Our emotions? It's possible. But you know what's much easier? It's much easier to change the garments. So he now brings it back. Similarly, with regard to the garments of the soul, and this is, again, it's a very short chapter, and, and this is it. The garments of speech and deed can be shed. When it comes to speech and deed, you don't have to do something. You don't have to say something. You can remain silent. If you feel yourself getting triggered, oh no, I'm getting triggered. I'm about to say something I'm going to regret. Don't say it. I'm about to do something that I won't be able to take back. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Do you have the ability to not do something? Absolutely. Not say something? 100%. Just don't do it. Just don't say it. And even thought, let's continue, and even thought which is constantly active and cannot be shed, you can't shut off your brain. It still can be replaced with a different thought. You can replace your machshava, your thought, with different thought. However, but man's intellect and emotions are the soul itself. Now, I clarify today, they're not actually the soul itself, but they're closer to the soul. Remember, there's three layers. There's the soul itself, there's the intellect and emotions, and then there's the garments of the soul. So he's referring now to this middle level. Man's intellect and emotions are the soul itself. Relative to the garments, it's the soul itself. And hence, much effort, even a special assistance from above, is necessary in order to change them. So can you change the way you feel inside? Change the way you think. Not what you think. Not what you're thinking about, but the way you think? It's possible. But that's going to require a lot of effort. When we think about reinventing ourselves, when we think about today's topic, reinventing ourselves, we can think about this in one of two ways. Number one, how can I be that elephant that throws off that cord and says, you don't actually have power over me. You no longer have a hold in, on my life. I recognize that what I thought right, was my weakness is actually just in my own head. That's not actually a weakness, not an objective weakness. That thing, that fear, that challenge, that whatever, is not actually more powerful than me. I'm more powerful than it as soon as I choose to see myself as more powerful. So that's one way. I can go inside my psyche. I can try to analyze where in my childhood did this belief come from, right? What, were, what was the narrative that led me, who were the people in my life that led me to believe that I can't do this thing that I believe that I can't do? I can do that analysis, I can do that introspection, and I can try to unwire that wiring. And that's doable. He says it's very difficult. It's doable and we might need special siyata uh, deshmaya, we might need some help from above to do that inner work, to rewire these energies and our fears and our loves and our, all that stuff. It's possible, but it's difficult. The easier thing, the way easier thing is to take the same wine, the same oranges, and put them into a different package. Take the same wine and put it into a blue bottle as opposed to a clear bottle. Take the same oranges and put them into an orange bag. And what that means is that no matter how I feel inside, no matter, despite the fear that I feel inside, I'm not conquering my fear today. What I am doing is, in action, showing up and putting myself in a space where the fear is challenged. Am I going to conquer my fear today I, am I, with a deep dive? No. But I'm putting myself, I'm facing that fear and doing something that otherwise I would be afraid to do. This is where 
This is where Kabbalah says the real magic happens. Reinventing ourselves on the inside is possible, but it requires a lot of work and a lot of time. The quicker, I don't know if it's easier, I guess, certainly it's easier actually, it's easier, it's quicker, it's, it's less of a deep dive, but the easier, quicker way to do this is to put ourselves into that space of doing what we need to be doing, speaking what we need to speak, thinking the way we need to think, and only we know what that means for ourselves. But putting ourselves into that space of action and showing up in that way. Um, trying to think of, uh, I thought of one parallel that I wanted to share, and then just as quickly as it came in, it went out. So I'll have to save that for next time, or if I, if I recall in the next minute or so. But that's, that's really the message I wanted to convey today. That things in Kabbalah, there's a lot of things that are relative. Right, just to kind of recap what we spoke about today. Things are relative. So we have core, we have soul, body, clothing, physically. We have soul, soul powers, and garments of the soul, spiritually. And the reality is that that middle layer, while it is changeable, is very difficult to change. What's way, what's more in our wheelhouse, what's more ready to go, is that most external dimension. And so when we think about personal change and personal reinvention, I'm trying to recall what I was thinking. Um, you know, we can try to, the, 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 the elephant can try to, try to un- unravel itself, you know, with, with hours of, of introspection, or it can say to itself, look, I'm going to bust through this, this cord. Let me just get through this space. You know, the question is, if we're not there on the inside, how do we get there on the outside? The answer is, with, with study like this, that reminds ourselves that we do have the ability to fake it till we make it and to put ourselves into that space that we know we need to be. And when we fake it till we make it, it's not really faking it at all because our outside and our inside is aligned even if the middle is not there yet. All right, thank you for joining me today for Kabbalah Cafe. Hope this resonated with you and hope the ideas... Huh? I'm going to try the show for again. All right, let me stop sharing. All right, guys, we're going to do one more test over here. All right, tell me if you can hear this. Now, this is real. I'm not, this is not a prank. All right. No? No. Try from all the way on the other side of the room. Hold on. No. This is crazy. How crazy is this? It overpowers the speaker. Overpowers the speaker? I mean, I was standing initially.